forget all you know. All you need is your intuition. Intuition tells you this episode of Diabolical contains spoilers for Willow. Welcome to Diabolical, the show where four long-suffering friends dissect film's most dastardly schemes, then try to improve them. I'm your host, Ben Steinson, and this week's movie is Willow. So, consult the bones, and let's get Diabolical. Once again, I'm joined by our panel of peril. Introduce yourselves and tell us what's your favourite Warwick Davis performance, TV or film? Hello, I'm Adam Turner and my favourite Warwick Davis performance is the TV quiz Tenable. (laughs) And if you believe that... (laughs) What's that? Uh, It's a terrible, terrible quiz show in the UK. Okay. One of the topics on it was, can you list the top 10 vegetables sold in Asda, excluding potatoes. Carrots, onions. <laughs> yeah, I think that, that was on the list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Broccoli, cauliflower, mushrooms. Shallots. Uh, oh, no. I think shallots are in the top 20 at best. Garlic, sweet potatoes. Oh, really? Now you do surprise me. Parsnips. Mm-hmm. Cauliflower. <laughs> Broccoli florets. Hey, now you're talking. Hey, oh, I hope there's going to be a broccoli floret rating system for this particular movie. Yeah, you have to remind me. I always forget. Yeah, you have to. Well, there you go. That's your reminder. Sorry. Anyway, carry on. Uh, Craig here. My favourite Warwick Davis performance. It might be a bit obvious. It's a Star Wars one. It's um, Phantom Menace Podrace Spectator when uh, he's, he's given <laughs> he's given some great. Uh, no, it's uh, it's Wicket from Return of the Jedi. Uh, he genuinely, I I feel for an eleven year old kid, gives a great physical performance there. He sells uh, Wicket's mood very well. Yeah, that is great. Yes, I like that. And I'm Gareth Slade, and my favourite Warwick Davis film is Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. Is that the one? The fourth one? What's the fourth one? The Goblet of Fire, isn't it? It's the fourth yeah, one, I believe. That's the one. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he he, pl- he plays um is it the one uh, he's Flitwick. He's the bank manager, isn't he? Oh, he also plays a professor at the school. Does he? Yes, he does. <laughs> <laughs> Later, they'll be competing for the title of this week's Most Diabolical. But first, let's take a closer look at this week's movie. Released May 20, 1988, Willow was directed by the prolific Ron Howard, whose other credits include Splash, Parenthood, Apollo 13, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and Solo, to name just a few. Howard was approached by George Lucas to direct during post-production of Cocoon in 1985. Initially, Willow wasn't a big hit with critics, and its box office return was below expectations despite grossing $137 million worldwide against a budget of $35 million. 
Much like Big Trouble in Little China, Willow benefited from the booming home video market, going on to become a cult classic. And it's even getting a sequel in the form of an upcoming series on Disney+. Other films released in 1988 include Die Hard, Big, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Young Guns, Scrooged, and the first installment of the Child's Play franchise. Surely 1988 is a contender for greatest year in movie history. Some other facts about 1988 that may or may not interest you. The population of Earth was just 4.3 billion people. A pint of beer in the UK cost 98 pence. For our friends in the US, a 35-inch television cost $3,000. But more importantly, the cost of a movie ticket was just $4. In the film, we follow the eponymous Willow, a simple Nelwyn farmer and wannabe sorcerer played by Warwick Davis. Willow is tasked by his village to return a daikini baby to its own kind. Along the way, he discovers that the baby is in fact a princess, who it has been foretold will bring about the downfall of the evil queen Bav Morda, whose grip on the realm tightens by the day. Bav Morda will stop at nothing to rid herself of this pesky child, calling on bloodthirsty hellhounds, ruthless soldiers, dark magic, and her own daughter to capture and dispose of the child. Willow forms an unlikely friendship with maverick swordsman Mad Mardigan, played by Val Kilmer, and vows to protect the child and return her to her rightful throne. In the final showdown, Willow tricks Evil Queen into banishing herself into the netherworld, protecting baby Elora and saving the realm. He returns home a hero and a promising sorcerer. It's a film with epic battles, charming comedy, and for the era, groundbreaking special effects. You may be able to tell that I'm very excited to talk about this one. So without further ado, let's jump into it. But before I ask you what you thought of the film, guys, I would like to start off with a little trivia quiz. Uh, I'm going to give you a few facts about the film. You've got to decide whether they're true or false. If you believe the fact to be true, you'll say, let me worship you in my arms. If you believe the fact to be false, you will say, I dwell in darkness without you. All right. The first fact. Warwick Davis was just 19 when shooting began on Willow. Let me worship you in my arms. I dwell in darkness without you. I believe he was 18. I worship you in my arms. <laughs> you are correct, Craig. He was, in fact, 17, but you are correct that it was false. He was 17 when production started. George Lucas had written the film for Davis after meeting him on set of Return of the Jedi. Okay, the next one. John Cusack tested for the role of Mad Mardigan. I dwell in darkness without you. Let me worship you in my arms. I dwell in darkness without you. Adam, you're correct. John Cusack did test for the role of Mad Mardigan. He lost out to Val Kilmer and he listed it among his greatest career regrets. Wow. Yeah. It's officially, it was because he wasn't jowly enough. <laughs> That may or may not be true. All right, the next one. The twin babies playing Alora Dannon were selected because of their exceptional shock of red hair. I dwell in darkness without you. Let me worship you in my arms. Let me worship you in my arms. That's another point to Adam there. Fuck. It is, in fact, false. The six-month-old twins playing Alora Dannon were too young to have a full head of hair, so they wear wigs, ah. which was applied using syrup because normal wig adhesive would be too harsh for baby's skin. They had a lot of problems with wasps on the set as well due, due to that fact. <laughs> terrible, terrible stings. 
Right, well, uh, Craig, you have one point here. Turner, you're in the lead with two. Gaz, you're uh, where you like to be, in the rear. <laughs> <laughs> Next one. The Devil Dogs were carefully constructed mechanical puppets put together by the crew at Industrial Light and Magic. I dwell in darkness without you. I dwell in darkness without you. I dwell in darkness without you. They're very clearly Rottweilers with rat costumes on. Indeed they are. Rubber masks and suits. Very good. Okay, the final piece of trivia. George Lucas conceived the idea for the film in 1972, and it was originally called Munchkins. I dwell in darkness without you. I dwell in darkness without you. Allow me to worship you in my arms. You are indeed correct, Craig. It is true. The working title (laughs) for the movie was Munchkins, inspired by the munchkins from Wizard of Oz, apparently. Wow, that... That's a very good title change. I think yeah. if it had been, if it, you can't imagine watching Munchkins now <laughs> with the same affection as Willow. <laughs> Jesus. It's a tie. What happens now? You got a tiebreaker? Do you know what? I do not have a tiebreaker. So I will worship both of you okay. in my arms equally. That's why the good Lord gave you two. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay then, what did you think of the film? I I enjoyed it. It's it's good. It's it's too long. It needs about half hour chopping out of the second act, which uh, for Oof. me is a bit aimless. I enjoyed it while I was watching it. Would I watch it again? Probably not. Will I watch the Disney Plus sequel series? Yeah, I probably will. So on the whole, yeah, I enjoyed it. That was a far better reaction than I could have hoped for, so I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> I'm almost 100% with you there. I, I really enjoyed it. But I did drift off a bit in the midsection. It was a bit flabby and I felt like I wasn't invested in it at that point. Maybe because the stakes don't feel very high at that point. They don't really reiterate them until later on. But as far as the Disney Plus series goes, I'm feeling quite hyped for it. I was after the trailer. I am even more after rewatching the movie. So I will definitely be watching that. Well, speaking of the trailer, I hadn't even bothered uh, looking at it until after I watched this film, and that trailer is excellent. Yeah, really, really stepped up the uh, production mm. value, um, mm. and obviously Warwick Davis has matured into quite quite a good actor. Certainly, a lot better than he was back in the day. I thought he was great for uh, you know an, an eighteen year old or seventeen year old, mm-hmm. yeah, playing a, a father, playing uh, you know somebody in a position of responsibility that he was. I thought he did a, a really good job. Yeah, I think he's fantastic in it. He's just a bit gosh wow Amdram for me. Yeah. Wide eyes, big reactions, playing to the playing to the cheap seats. That might be more down to Ron Howard than him though, if you've seen like Cocoon. Yeah. It, Ron Howard was in a very much uh, gosh wow place back in those days. <laughs> and I think it's that kind of film as well, isn't it? Yeah. There's that too, right? What did you think, Adam? Yeah, I, I, I'd agree with what it's already been said. Sort of, yeah, what Craig said it lost its way sort of midway through. And that's exactly, I was watching it on the night and I got to about 40 minutes and I was like, oh, this is 
why has this just gone off a cliff all of a sudden? And um, so, I, yeah, I stopped watching at that point, and then I think I watched it again the following day, the rest of it. But it's sort of like dragging to get through to the final act sort of thing. And I, I, I remember it a bit differently from when I was watching it as a kid, because we watched it, um, I'm not sure, we probably all watched it together, but I think some of us remember it and some of us don't, in um, Hank Goldwyn. Oh, yeah. I remember watching it then and being really upset when she's doing the things with the baby and it's all wrapped up and it's on the altar. And I couldn't watch it as a kid. So it's kind of quite emotive, that sequence for me as well. But I mean, there's loads of bits to love. But um, I'm saying with um, Warwick Davis's acting, uh, I don't know whether it was him or, like you say, Ron Howard saying, but he says Mad Martigan a hell of a lot. Like every other line coming from him is Mad Martigan all the time. And it's like, Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's down to either Warwick Davis or Ron Howard. What I was, I reckon that probably is, is is the screenplay. Yeah, don't think Warwick was just on set ad libbing <laughs> that. He forgot his lines. Just got his go to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, my man again. Just say that if you can't remember your lines, mate. <laughs> just for the listeners, uh, Hengowin is the the junior school that the four of us attended together, and uh, I believe we watched Willow, perhaps in the in the school hall. Yes, we did. Yeah, yeah. Just in front of the stage. Now that you said it, the, the memories uh, it's apparating in, in my mind, like uh, it's coming out of the fog. But uh, yeah, I'm remembering it more and more clearly now. Yeah, I was very glad at the time because I remember crying watching it. So, and it was very dark when we were watching. They pulled all the curtains and stuff, and I was just like, <laughs> when she was doing horrible things to the baby. So I didn't like it at all. <laughs> you had the same color hair, so that must have really been a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, it struck a chord with <laughs> me, didn't it? I've I've found this um, since fatherhood. I react to films in a much more emotional way than I used to. And uh, the bit when Willow's kid is is in the middle of like the town when the devil dogs come and she's crying, and you can see that she's really crying, right? Oh, that I couldn't deal with that. I was like, oh my god. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, it's horrible because there's definite emotions in that. Yeah, movie. I just watched the most recent series of Peaky Blinders. And there's a scene oh, in, in, yeah. in there that I won't go into spoilers here, but there's a scene that's related to father and, and kind of daughter. I had to stop at that point. I just got emotional yeah. overload and it's, oh, mm. yeah, it was, it, was hard, it was hard to get through. I know what you're talking about. I had the same reaction. I'd say I'm perhaps the opposite end of the spectrum to you three in that regard, because as soon as Turner said that the scene uh, with the baby found quite upsetting, my mind just wandered to a mashup between the opening sequence of The Witch, where she grinds up the child and rubs it all over <laughs> her body. <laughs> Someone must have done that on YouTube. <laughs> that really disturbed me as well. I loved that movie, though. That was great. Thanks for recommending that. To elaborate on um, what we all said about the midsection, the one thing that really struck me is there's a scene with like a chase on a horse and cart, which should be thrilling in like an Indiana Jones type movie. That's where you'd be pumped. And I was just bored and, and lost. And I thought, this is really weird. Why am I bored and lost when I'm watching a, like a chase scene? I should, this is when I should be the most invested. And like, like I say, I think it's because at that point I wasn't feeling the stakes of it. I was like, don't really know what I'm waiting for to happen here. That scene isn't particularly well filmed. You, you don't get a, a great sense of the geography or any potential yeah. peril coming. Whereas later on, the sequence going down the snowy hill on the shield, yes. I thought was absolutely superb. It escalates and escalates. You constantly know sort of where you're heading. Um, it's night and day, the difference between those sequences. Although the dummy Warwick Davis on the sled is very obviously a dummy and it wobbles quite a bit. <laughs> the bit where they sled into the ravine is fantastic and it looks great. That's amazing. 
It's carved out. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah. I didn't find it sad. And I've watched Willow with my kids in the last year or so anyway. And I, every time I just find myself riding this wave of nostalgia. So I'm not looking at it critically. Yeah, I didn't have that. I didn't have any nostalgia. I haven't seen it for probably, you know, 30 years, I guess. It's always been one of my favorites. Yeah. I, I wasn't really into fantasy until you all dragged me to Fellowship of the Ring. And you remember the first time we saw that, I didn't like it. <laughs> and then when Two Towers hype was coming around, I watched it again. And that's when I started getting into fantasy type stuff. I was never really into like Dark Crystal or Labyrinth or any, any of that stuff. That was all me. That was all you, yeah. Yeah. Well, this is why I'm, I'm hoping sort of that the, when they do the, the TV series of this, it follows in the footsteps of Dark Crystal. I haven't seen the series of that either. Was that good? It's really, really good. It's wonderful. It's I, I really enjoyed it. Really, really, really enjoyed it. Yeah. And it's uh, Simon Pegg does the voice of uh, the Skeksis. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Becky's really into Dark Crystal, right? <laughs> Is that a joke? <laughs> no, she hates the Dark Crystal. Traumatised No, I, yeah, she, she told me. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a sequence in one of, uh, I think it's the end of one of the episodes, where it's just screaming for about 10 minutes straight with like big crash scenes. And she was just like, I cannot watch this anymore. <laughs> it's incredible, lightning coming down and people getting eaten alive. It's intense. Yeah, and you're so it's so you're just so invested in these puppets. It's crazy. It's really good, really good. Yeah, yeah I love great. that series. That reminds me. Did Dylan Slade watch Willow? Uh, he did not. No. Uh, he asked what this week's film was and what it entailed, and uh, yeah, he didn't didn't fancy it. He was out from the start. Even even earlier than Goldfinger, we've got a new record. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Nope. Just the synopsis is enough to put him off. Amazing. <laughs> you can't have sold it very well. So who do you think was the standout performer? It's Val Kilmer. Yeah. Come on. Oh, uh, Billy Barty. Billy Barty was excellent. He's Gwildor, right? From He-Man. Yeah, yeah. He was so good, yeah. I loved him. But yeah, Val Kilmer, dependable. I haven't seen anything with Val Kilmer in that I didn't like on some level. Uh, he's great in there. He can do it all. He can do swashbuckling, comedy, proper serious chops as well. Yeah, I mm. love Val Kilmer. I agree. He was just a standout performer, but I'll give a very special mention to Jean Marsh, who played Queen Bavmorda. Yeah. She was terrifying. Yeah, pretty good buddy. She's a bit hammy at the start, but when they get to her at the end and she's um, like physical acting, yeah. you know, pulling her arms and shoulders up and walking in that weird yeah. way, I think. Uh, that is what probably that model, what's her name, was trying to achieve in Suicide Squad. Didn't quite pull it off. Cara Delevingne? Cara Delevingne, yeah, yeah. The the one thing I would say about the, the physical acting is it's kind of random when she's turning everybody into pigs at the end. She's just like waving her hands all over the place. It doesn't look like yeah. there's any internal yeah. logic to it to me. That'll be uh, George Lucas and I'll, I'll steal this joke from Turner again because it's my favourite. <laughs> Popping up like the paperclip on Word. Just, I can just imagine him <laughs> leaning into the megaphone every now and again. Uh, Gene, just, uh, just move your arms around a bit more. <laughs> waving a batting a mosquito away (laughs) that scene uh, the castle Bavmorda's castle they actually built that in Clamberis in Dinora Quarry there it's a great set 
really is fantastic. All of the locations are great. Can you name the other film that was um, shot in Flamberis? Is it Mortal Kombat Annihilation? Starring Richard Gere and Sean Connery. Uh. <laughs> Richard Gere, there's got to be Sean Connery. Is it called Twelfth Night or Last Night or something? First Night. First Night. There you go. <laughs> One of the nights. <laughs> <laughs> One of the nights. I've never seen it, but I know of it. What did you think of the opening section? You'll recall the credits are kind of rolling as you you see the, the midwife's journey mm. with the baby. I thought, for me, it just pulled me straight in. And it, every time, it's just this great montage of her traveling through these different kind of uh, different wildernesses. Yeah, landscapes. And I just think it's so engaging. I was a little bit confused by it. Like the passage of time, clearly, like when, when she gets to the end and Elora has long hair, you know that she's been with her for some time but i didn't get that immediately like i thought well and also because the the devil dogs catch up with her and i thought have they been following her for months what's what we meant to think here so i found it a little bit confusing but the um and this carries on through the movie the sense of scale is really impressive he really did not waste the chance to film on location in in wales and new zealand like you see every inch of that on the screen so yeah that was impressive and also you see what they do is is a lot of the scenery they, they film from different places, China, as, as you say, New Zealand. They actually overlay it or use it as a background. So for Queen Bavmorda's castle, even though it was filmed in Clamberis, the actual backdrop you see is New Zealand. Oh, wow. That's clever. Ah, interesting. The notes that I have about the use of the scenery and so forth, uh, you know, obviously lots of nice wide shots showing showing the scenery off. And mm-hmm. even when you see Bav Morda's army marching, I forget where they're marching now, but there's an impressive amount of extras is, is the point that I wanted to make. Yeah, Especially the final battle as well with the rain I've put. There's quite a lot of cribbing from Hikira Kurosawa here. Yeah. In how, just stylistically, how things are staged and shot. Which, you know, it's one of the best people to crib from. That won't be an accident, obviously. Yeah, I think um, Mad Mottigan says there's 500 idiots and you believe there are 500 soldiers walking down that road. Famously, of course, we spoke about our uh, school we went to earlier. Our high school had a Welsh teacher who claimed to be one of the extras in Willow and that he had been turned into a pig for the night. No reason not to believe him. His name was Mr. Williams. William Williams. Known to everyone as Willow Williams. Yeah, Willow Williams. <laughs> Willow Williams, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, it was, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> and on the off chance he hears this, thanks again for teaching me Welsh. Uh, you did a great job. <laughs> that's not sarcasm. Diolch yn fawr iawn. I got an A and I was, I was really pleased. I thought he was a good teacher. So before we move too far away from the cinematography, did you know who the DP was for Willow? I don't think I know even now. His name's Adrian Biddle. Okay. He did... Thelma and Louise. Ooh. He did The Mummy. Mm-hmm. He did The Princess Bride. Mm-hmm. And Turner, you're going to love this one. He did Aliens. Huh. Ah. Well, say no more. Interesting spectrum there, because obviously Aliens, zero location footage. It's all miniatures and models and stuff. But I guess he learned how to shoot scale on all those other, obviously very outdoorsy ones. Even Thelma and Louise has like, you know, the... Well, that came later, actually. That, that was later, as was The Mummy. I think Princess Bride might have been his, either the film before Willow or the film after, possibly the film after, actually. Gaz, you sent a, a shot from one of the scenes. That was a scene of Bav Morda's castle with, with the New Zealand backdrop. Yeah, and it's just gorgeous, the way it's shot. Yeah, the sunlight sort of breaking through the, the cloud cover. Fantastic. The light of God. Yeah, yeah, amazing. Yeah. There's also another great shot 
where you see them leaving the Nelwyn village just uh, when they're setting off on their journey to return the, Daiki, the baby to the Daikini. And it, that's a, a shot. The backdrop is China. They're kind of they're kind of skirting around this hill. The background is actually China, and it just looks amazing. The, the kind of the two uh, pieces mesh together. There's a bunch of screensaver worthy shots in it. One that I really loved is the establishing shot of Mad Morgan's cage. It's just a beautiful wide shot. The mountains in the background. I was looking at it thinking, holy shit, this is like it was enough to stop me for a second and look and take in how well composed it was. So yeah, great great work on that. I think we've already touched on a few of these, but what aspect of the film didn't work for you? I would say the um, the dragon, was it the Ebersisk, I think it's called. Yeah. In the actual, well, it's um, never named yeah. in the film. No, but I looked it up. I was like, what's it called? Because to me, I was like, it just looks like a two-headed rancor. So I was like, what? And why yeah. does it, I don't know why it just comes about. He turns that blooming troll inside out with his wand, doesn't he? Turns into like a brain, oh, yeah. sprouts two things, and I was like, and it kicks it off, and it falls in the moat, and then all of a sudden, it's a it's a two headed rancor that breathes fire. I liked all that. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was done well. Yeah, I liked all. I liked the Harryhausen style animation of it. It felt really cool. That's about the only bit of the film where I thought it doesn't really stand up very well now at all. Wouldn't say this uh, didn't work for me, but because I was watching it with a, an ear for dialogue, hoping to pick out my favorite line. The note I've written here is. Is the romantic dialogue in this worse than the romantic dialogue in Star Wars Episodes 2 and 3? Because <laughs> I think it might be. <laughs> no. It's, it's pretty awful. I think it's a close call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think in this it's purposely ridiculous, isn't it? Because he's under a love potion. Yeah, it gets away with it for that reason, I think. Yeah. Yeah, for that reason. Whereas George Lucas goes, well... But, you know, you could say the same of Anakin, right? You know, love has blinded him. <laughs> <laughs> You almost said that with a straight face, though. I tried. tried. (laughs) What's he say? He says something like, uh, you've grown as well. I mean, well, beautiful, I mean, uh, for uh, for a politician. uh, 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 (laughs) Well, since you've mentioned favourite lines, would you like to go into them? Yeah, mine's just one word. Vonka! (laughs) Yes! (laughs) Which is when... um, I've got that down as one of my favourites. That's so good. (laughs) Yeah, Burglecut has refused to let Vonkar go along until he's forced to go. <laughs> that was that was good fun. Yeah, that's the one line I had. Yeah, I thought I've ri- I've written that down as well, and I thought if there's not if there's no better line than that throughout the whole the rest of the film, it's still a peach. So. <laughs> <laughs> I've got well, I've got two. Well, I like that Vonkar one, which is brilliant. But it's that bit where the dragon, the Ebersisk, comes up and stuff like that, and it's uh, General Curly Kale. He says, um, the, it's just the way he delivers it. He just goes, destroy the beast, find the baby. And I was, <laughs> <laughs> that just tickled me. I would also say as well is um, Mad Martigan's, Mad Martigan! Mad Martigan's um, friend, Eric, when he's dying in the castle, witness war for me. And then he dies and he goes, I was creased over. I almost literally, I almost fell off the sofa because I was laughing so much because it was such a, a really cheesy death scene. It's just, I was honestly a brilliant, fantastic. Well, a couple from me then. When Willow was getting ready to leave on the journey and his kids are coming to say goodbye and saying, Are you not scared, daddy? And, and Willow's like, No, no, it's not even of trolls. <laughs> and you, know, you see his face, you see Willow's face kind of turn. And then the little boy goes, you know, trolls that will skin you alive and take your face off. Because <laughs> he's such a cute little thing as well. 
take your face off. (laughs) (laughs) The innocence of children. My most favorite line, I would say, was when they were traveling towards a lake and it's it's a a scene between Willow and, and Mad Mardigan and they're just in front of a waterfall and Mad Mardigan's giving this kind of black root to the baby and Willow's not happy about it. And, uh, you know, he, tell, he tells Mad Mardigan to t- take it out. And Mad Mardigan goes, it's okay, I'll put hairs on her chest. And Willow just screams, her name is Alora Dannon, future queen of Tira's Lean. And the last thing she is going to want is a hairy chest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <it's> like... <laughs> I know one note Gaz made because he told us the other day and he hasn't mentioned it yet about the good sorcerer. What's the name? Finn Raziel. Her little animal voice is very funny. That was it. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing funnier than a wombat with a high-pitched voice. Willow! (laughs) (laughs) And then she has to change it as well for... Yeah, for each animal. Versatile actress. Exactly. We mentioned the dogs a little bit earlier in in the trivia section, but I think they do an excellent job of creating tension every time they're they're on they actually look great like uh they look great but Mm. you're you're scared of them yeah you hear you hear the sound and this immediate tension i think it it works really well yeah you think that a dog in a rat costume would just look shite but it looked great (laughs) yeah Yeah. i thought they were half dog half sheep half pig i've got half rat half dog half pig (laughs) i've just put dog rat (laughs) haven't gone into the the split One of the things that's great is the editing, particularly the way they edit around the baby actor's facial expressions to make it look like she's commenting on things like raising her eyebrows. They're really good. Yeah. From the start, the two kids, some of the faces they pull, you're just like, Jesus Christ, how the fuck do you get them to do those faces? Because they fall perfectly. And I think the only other movie where you've got a, well, for me anyway, a conspiracy comparison for that is like look who's talking where they get the kids to do loads of funny faces in that as well and i was just like this is just like a, a dark look who's talking essentially there's the quote for the episode ah <laughs> <laughs> uh, whoops uh, there i go again <laughs> <laughs> This is the part of the show where our panel of peril compete for the title of this week's Most Diabolical, and with it, the honour of choosing next week's movie and hosting the show. The evil Queen Bavmorda seeks to stop a prophecy from coming to pass by finding and destroying the child who will bring about her downfall, but she is unsuccessful. Craig, what would you have done differently? Queen Bavmorda is blinkered obsessed to the point of distraction with the prophecy. A prophecy that misread could have been. (laughs) For the truth is that, ultimately, helpless cherubic neonate Elora Danan, unsurprisingly, has very little agency in the Queen's downfall, offering little more than a gurgle, or perhaps quietly soiling herself. (laughs) But there is a girl child, whose role in Bavmorda's downfall was also prophesied, and which proves pivotal, and that girl is her own daughter, Saoirse. It's not difficult to imagine the frigid, loveless environment in which she was raised, and indeed we don't have to, 
because the Willow Source book handily recounts her childhood for us. Saoirse grew in loneliness as the underlings were too terrified to befriend her. Her only friend was Lop, a mangy lop-eared cat. Bavmorda raised the young princess, intending to follow her path as a sorceress, but she failed at the simplest tests. One day, Bavmorda tricked Saoirse into accidentally killing the cat. <laughs> no wonder then that there was little love lost between Bavmorda and her daughter. Like the water in Mallorca, she ain't raised her like she oughta. <laughs> in Bavmorda's shoes, upon hearing the omen that my daughter may one day betray me, I would realize the potential threat she posed would be more imminent than that of drooling Sprog Elora and turn my attention to healing the rift between myself and my daughter. For starters, I gift her a new cat with an untwistable stomach. <laughs> we name the cat Dreadlord Jellybean and take him for a picnic to the lonely island where he kills and eats a cursed talking possum, having developed a taste for possum meat while being raised on an exclusive diet of possum by me. <laughs> Next, I take her to see her pops, frozen in crystal, and encourage her to throw a ball at him or something. Maybe she climbs up for a shoulder ride and I give him a nudge so he slides around a bit. We'd have our handmaidens braid our hair, and I use my dark magic to conjure an absurdly rich vanilla cheesecake, which we share while watching our favourite jester juggle balloon animals. I ask her if she's ever wanted a sister. This lonely girl, of course she has. I let her know that the only ritual I plan to undertake is one to formally adopt the Laura Danan, and I mean it. If the prophecy can be broken by any means, there's no reason to believe that a banishment would yield any more permanent success than simply keeping the girl sweet. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. With our bond now strengthened, I ride by my daughter's side as we quest to recover the child together. There you go. Very good. So cheesecake, is that something that was common in the, in the area? Or is that something you've invented with dark magic? Is it evil cheesecake? Either way, I think dark magic could conjure it. What fruit are you having on it? It was just vanilla. Vanilla cheesecake? Like a New York cheesecake. Mm. Does they exist? <laughs> I don't think it's pivotal to the plan. It's just an example of something that we, we might share together. Has it, has it been cursed? Take this cheesecake, but beware, it carries a terrible curse. If they'd mentioned in... <laughs> but it comes with a free frogat. If they'd mentioned anywhere in the course of Willow, whether cheesecake explicitly was or was not, in existence at the time, then I would have taken that into account. And I was thinking it's something that I would like to eat with my daughter. So could just as easily be, you know, a, a rich high glodian pomfret cake or whatever the fuck George Lucas comes out with. <laughs> okay, good. What if while you're raising your daughter in mm. this new kind of cheesecake utopia, new age loving way, mm -hmm. she asks you about the birds and the bees how would you explain that to her? Say bees are like, you know, they, they make honey. Birds, are, we, <laughs> we just don't know what they are. <laughs> well, let's, let's role play it. Mother, mother, where do babies come from? Well, Elora, you came to us in a very special way. We, uh, we saved you as someone had carelessly put you on a river. But we went out and found you and we brought you back. Now, uh, as for how babies are made well you'll find out when you're older <laughs> very good thank you very much craig all right gaz what have you got for us give me a b 
B. Give me an A. A. Give me a V. V. Give me an M. M. This is nothing to do with my plum, by the way. I just thought it'd be fun. Give me an O. O. Give me an O. Give me a D. D. Nearly there. Give me an A. A. And what does that spell? Hooray! 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 (laughs) Speaking of (laughs) Bavmord. That was a smooth segue. Holy shit. Oh, I like that. Was that totally ad-libbed then, was it? No, I bet he's written it all down. Every single bit of it. I have. Have you? Oh. <laughs> oh, that's good. Okay. But speaking of Bavmorda, Hegel in Willow centers on destroying the child Allura before the little bundle of fun. Ah, look at a little fucking pudgy fingers. Before, <laughs> before the little you can't do Oh, my God. <laughs> I become quite lightheaded. <laughs> 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 Before the little tight can undo her. I think we can all agree that seizing every pregnant woman in the land is just a little bit overkill. No. What Bav Morda should have done is utilise a power more ancient than any of her sorceries. I am, of course, talking about the use of propaganda. What better way is there of initiating destruction than by simply convincing ordinary folk to initiate it to themselves? To begin, Bav Morda should have her minions nailing posters to trees. What should these posters read? One of the most famous propaganda posters in recent times is the Lord Kitchener Uncle Sam I Want You design from the First World War. Pasting our pasty-faced sorceress's fizzog and pointing hand onto the parchment, the text should read, I want you (laughs) to find the prophesied child and undo them. (laughs) No, wait, bring them to me. Dead or alive? No, alive. Alive. For... Cuddles. (laughs) This first step may well result in large deliveries of infant children to Bavmorda's castle, and with little likelihood of being able to determine which child is Allura, that would mean an awful lot of child sacrificing. But you've got to fill your day somehow, haven't you? (laughs) The second stage would involve a big old leaflet drop from the skies. This tactic was used to great effect by both the Allies and the Axis during World War II Electric Boogaloo, such as when the US airdropped literature into Japan claiming that Hitler would betray the Emperor. On that basis, I would have giant eagles drop leaflets from their talons that make the claim that babies spread rabies, see Bavmorda for advice, they also give you scabies. (laughs) At that point, the parents of the children, mostly simple folk of course, would take the progeny to their doom on the promise of help. Pop them on the sacrificial altar, bish bash bosh. Finally, Bav Morda should utilise the simplest propaganda tool of all, the Whispering Campaign. Down at the Not Prancing Pony Tavern on a Saturday night, you simply plant a few lackeys strategically inside the tavern. I've heard Bav Morda showers you with gold if you let her tickle your tots tutters, one would say. Man... (laughs) Bav Morda sure is a rockin' dude. 
She cured my scabies and gave my child a lovely stone altar to sleep on, another wooden tone, and so on and so on. You get the idea. Now, you might well say the ideas presented above are contradictory or antithetical. These are simple people, likely without great critical thinking skills, limited knowledge of the world around them, crucially, like the criminals of Gotham City, are a cowardly and superstitious lot. Easy pickings, in other words. I've only made one note. And the note says, make Gaz's poster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that would be good, actually. Yeah. Although I do have a question, which is, uh, aren't you leaving things a little bit to chance? If Willow's mother doesn't go to that pub or doesn't can't read? These are simple folks who might not be able to read. Willow's mother? Sorry, Elora's mother. What if Elora's <laughs> mother can't read and doesn't go to the... Uh, You could perhaps set up a free taxi service, which would be, I don't know, big hedgehogs and you hop on their back (laughs) and they'll take you. You say, I want to go to the supermarket and they go, yeah, okay," but they take you to the not prancing pony tavern. All part of the plan. Sounds like a comfy ride. <laughs> we're supposed to believe giant talking hedgehogs run a taxi service in this world, are we? Yeah, that sounds really implausible. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, sorry, I don't go south in the river, love. <laughs> <laughs> Presumably the whispers campaign wouldn't end in the tavern. That's where they begin. But I assume your idea is that they would spread further? Like wildfire. But magic wildfire, it's green or something. Indeed, indeed. So was that your plan that you forgot to write down? Or is that the host leading the witness and giving you a plan that you didn't have? The gentleman never tells. (laughs) 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 All right, Adam. We see at the start of the film, even those in evil Queen Bavmorda's service are not beyond empathy when the midwife takes Laura Dannon away from her clutches at the 11th hour. Mad Mardigan! <laughs> After this significant <laughs> setback, Bavmorda reevaluates her position. Clearly, the fear that she imposes on her subjects isn't exactly bringing home the bacon, or in this case, a baby. Perhaps a change of tact would provide more fruit. Mad Mardigan! Bavmorda... Under the cover of night, leaves her fortress and orders her remaining forces to destroy the castle in what should appear to be a lack of faith in her powers. Faking her own death and leaving the world to rejoice in her defeats and banishment from the world. She herself sets forth to greener pastures and establishes a new settlement near the sea under an assumed identity. Recruiting the finest tailors and artists in the known world, Babmorda is transformed into the king of the port. Trade from all corners begins to flood into the king's rapidly expanding city, and tales of his kindness, generosity, and wealth spread far and wide, regularly holding banquets and fairs for traders and wealthy folk alike, while simultaneously feeding his citizens and making sure no one goes without. Who would suspect a monarch of anything insidious? Mad Of course. Who can resist the lure of such a wonderful man and the stories of goodness? So, eventually, the guardian of Alora Dannon is tempted into thinking this will be a permanent sanctuary for them. After sending word to the king through a medium, Bavmorda is clearly delighted to have finally tempted Alora and a guardian out of cover. Mad <laughs> The king, after hearing the prophecy foretold, and his love 
of all things good and pure, is only too happy to welcome them and promise to introduce them to his family and possibly a future marriage to his son so the prophecy can come true. Matt Bardigan! Come in! Welcome to you all! We have looked forward to your arrival, says a disguised Bavmorda under a beard made of golden sheep's wool. Thank you, Your Majesty, for your hospitality. We are delighted to meet, says the clearly relieved midwife and guardian. Matt Bardigan! Oh, yeah. Well, you ain't going to like this too much, are you, you turd? Magically dropping the, an axe to split the midwife in two. <laughs> Seize the girl, shouts a quickly transformed Bavmorda. Seal the castle and prepare for the ritual. Mabarakad! Free to carry out the ritual under the guise of a friendly monarch, Elora sacrificed, allowing Bavmorda to rule without hinder. However, in a slight twist to the end, after ruling as a good king and seeing all the, the good things a king can do, uh, Bavmorda is racked with guilt, and after a deep depression in killing a child born to bring about happiness to all, she throws herself from the battlements to her death. The end. I got one question. I noticed a few times during your plan you shouted Mad Martigan. Mad Martigan! What's that about? Take from it what you will. Presumably, <laughs> if your plan is, was to go ahead, as you describe, Mad Martigan would have rotted to death in the crow's cage. If you have to ask, you'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> I got a bit lost at the bit where somehow Bavmorda became a king. Could you just describe that part for me again? That's kind of pivotal. Under cover of darkness, she leaves the fortress and, like I said, she recruits tailors and, and artists and stuff like that to basically transform her into, like, basically convince uh, everybody she's this king come from somewhere and she sets up her own city near uh, in a port, turns it around and basically gets... And does it uh, can basically convinces everybody she's a wonderful king. I've got one serious question, and um, I think it, it may may put a hole in your plan, which is... Go on, then. You said that upon hearing about this wonderful new kingdom by the sea, mm-hmm. that Elora and her guardian would yes. think this is the perfect sanctuary for them. Sanctuary from what? They think Bavmord is dead. Why aren't they just living their lives the way they want? Oh, they're still living, they're still living in fear, because they believe it's a ruse to get them out. Of what? Above order. They believe it's rude to get them out. Well, why don't they suspect that there might be danger at this kingdom then? Because he's 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 wonderful king and he's looking after everybody and all that kind of stuff. So they just get loose, fall for it, hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> all right. Well, let's role play, it, uh, Adam. Mm-hmm. You are king, queen, Bavmorda. Yes. You're giving your subjects a speech, and you're going to convince them that this is not a ruse in any way, and that this city is a perfect sanctuary. Go. Greetings, citizens. I am your king. This is not a ruse in any way, and this is a sanctuary for all. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds trustworthy. That's good enough for me. You can totally trust me. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. (laughs) (laughs) He's doing like air quotes. (laughs) Trust me. Gaz, do you have any questions about... No, my, my question was going to be, were all those Mad Martigans necessary? But it pretty much got covered by Craig's opening question. Yeah, well, I th- I don't think all the Mad Martigans in the film were, were totally necessary, so that's why I chucked them in there. <laughs> it was Adam's equivalent of a dirty protest. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. I think you just did it for comedic effect, and it worked. <laughs> How dare you? How dare you, sir? How dare you? If anyone listening uh, uh, would like to comment 
on Adam's performances, zany, he would be most delighted. Fruity, yes. Zany. Some absolutely diabolical schemes there, but there can be only one winner. A quick recap of the schemes. We had Craig's very radical idea of showing some love, and not tough love, but actual love love. (laughs) We had Gareth's idea, which involves a three-stage propaganda campaign, reaching from taverns to to trees and... uh, To the heavens themselves. To the heavens themselves, indeed. And then we have Turner's plan to disguise as a, a good king, convince all the citizens of a port town that it is now a, a perfect sanctuary to lure the midwife and the baby out of hiding. I think you guys have upped, upped the game this week. It's, uh, it's a difficult choice. I love the way you guys told the story, but I think this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, about me being emotionally overwhelmed watching a lot of stuff these days. and so. The most heartwarming of all of those stories was Craig's. Therefore, you are the winner, Craig. You have warmed my heart with love and cheesecake. Thank you. Congratulations. And what film have you chosen for us for next week? Next week, we will be dissecting the diabolical plot of The Truman Show. All right. Another Jim Carrey film. Yes, it um, is. A, it's a Jim Carrey film. Totally lacking in imagination. <laughs> <laughs> if I recall correctly, Craig and Gaz both listed that as their favourite Jim Carrey film. Mm. That sounds correct. I certainly did. I did have another one lined up for my next one, but I think it's too similar to Willow, and we need to wait a bit. It's Labyrinth, isn't it? <laughs> oh, a gentleman Gaz. never tells. <laughs> money. <laughs> I've never seen Labyrinth, so yeah. You- what? Be an, odd, be an odd choice for me. Get stuffed. I can't believe that for a second. <laughs> seen bits of it. I don't know how we've been friends for so long. That's ridiculous. You don't seen Big, Love, Big Trouble Little China? Never seen Labyrinth? Yeah. No, I actually considering of ending this podcast right now and never coming back. <laughs> While you were all watching all these different things, between sort of 88 and 93, I was just watching Ghostbusters on a loop with the occasional Home Alone 2 <laughs> and then, then Jurassic Park. You're making capes for your uh, Ghostbusters Ray figure to turn him into Robin. That's what you <laughs> yeah. were doing for four years. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that's it for another week. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And if you're feeling saucy, why not tell your friends about us? We'll get more listeners and you'll have undeniable proof that you were listening to us before it was cool. It's win-win. Head over to Twitter and Instagram at DiabolicalPod throughout the week to tear apart our pitiful plans and tell us how you do better. You never know, we might be able to persuade Craig to do some personalised artwork for the ones that entertain us the most. Join us next week when we'll be jive-talking about The Truman Show. And remember, if you can't be good, be careful. <laughs>